You're listening to the Center for Auto Safety podcast with Executive Director Michael Brooks, Chief Engineer Fred Perkins, and hosted by Anthony Simino. For over 50 years, the Center for Auto Safety has been working to make cars safer. Find out more <laughs> at autosafety.org. So, uh, all right, let's, uh, I'm going to begin. Let's introduce, we've got some great guests today. We have Shihao Chang, the Associate Research Scientist at Dow, and John McKean, the Technical Director of Dow Mobility Science. Uh, welcome, guys. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having us today. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, so we're... Uh, Obviously, on this show, we talk a lot about EV batteries and um, how we can make things better because this is the future. Uh, no matter what Fred says, this is the future. <laughs> batteries are coming along. And so you guys are working in the thick of it. And we'd love to have some insight versus the things that I make up of what potential will happen in my imagination. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I guess with, with that, can you guys just give us a quick background on kind of what you've been working on? Yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, you said batteries are coming and I might I might have actually said uh, batteries are already here. EVs right. are already here. And yeah, I don't know exactly what the numbers were last year, but something like six million EVs sold in China and 25 percent of sales uh, for the EV fleet. So it's not that they're it's not that they're just coming, but but they're already here. And, you know, this is a time certainly that's uh, ripe for innovation and Dow's kind of trying to be and is in the thick of that. So I, I won't give an infomercial here, but let me just maybe say a few things about the company and then we can kind of dive into the battery safety piece. So, you know, Dow, Dow is probably one of the, the largest material science companies in the world. We've been around for 125 years, roughly 8,000 R&D employees out of 37,000 total working on uh, a host of different things in, in many different markets, mobility, just one of those. And uh, certainly a, a lot going on there. So we have a long history in automotive. Uh, I think maybe most people don't know, but in fact, when the Saturn was introduced, that was in the polycarbonate business. And we were actually a key player in collaborating with General Motors and bringing that vehicle to market. We also have a long history in uh, in automotive safety and being involved in products that are critical to, to occupant safety. And today, you know, supply a, a, a large volume of uh coatings for airbags to basically all of the, the major tier ones and tier twos out there uh, making making those things that keep us safe every day. Uh, in addition to kind of other things that go to the vehicle, including polyurethane foams, lots of uh, EPDM elastomers, uh, impact modifiers that are used interior and exterior. And as Chi Hao is very familiar with, uh, many formulated products that go into, among other things, uh, the battery to ensure that it operates appropriately during kind of normal and then also abnormal conditions. So uh, that, that's kind of kind of uh, a little bit about Dow and um, maybe hopefully sets the stage a little bit for the conversation here going forward. So well, that's great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, I met Chi Hao at an SAE meeting in Washington, and he was uh, showing some materials uh that are basically silicon-based materials that are very useful for or reducing the consequence of a battery fire, particularly for conventional lithium-ion batteries. And I got in a conversation with him about uh, that because that was very good, of course, but the other ways it could be used internally to the battery as well. And then we got into a discussion about battery chemistry. And, uh, and so, you know, I was already far beyond my competence by the time I just introduced myself with him. But there, perhaps you guys could talk a little bit about uh, uh, safety writ large, but also, you know, kind of from the inside out, starting with the battery chemistry and then moving out towards ways of containing defects that might occur with uh, various kinds of battery chemistries. And I know that's really broad topic area, but you know, what, what we're interested in, of course, is protecting consumers to the greatest extent possible. And with the coming of EVs, there's a lot to be learned about this. So let me, let me turn that over to you and ask you to go ahead and wax eloquent. I think I can go ahead. Yeah. So first of all, I mean, go start with the battery, you know, how the basic, right? So basically, battery battery has like four main components from the uh the positive material 
and negative material and a separator and electrolyte. And then how the leading ion battery works is basically just leading ion moving back and forth between uh, the cat, I mean, the positive and negative. And just think about it's more like a two cups of water, you know, pumping uh, between itself. But in reality world, it's not like that because in, re in reality, the cups has a lead. So it's like, you know, pumping the top, but you a, a lot of water will kind of get wasted. So this is how the capacity would, uh, you know, lo lost it. And also during this, uh, capacity losing, uh, process, there's a lot of side reaction could build up and the only side reaction would turns out a lot of heat. And then during the decomposition, all these, all these, uh, side reaction, these byproducts will generate even more heat. So eventually this temp, uh, the cell temp, uh, I mean, the cell will get a heat up. And then even more more side reaction given go over. And then at some setup point, it will, you know, generate heat and then the gas and eventually end up like fire. So there's a lot of, um, like safety device or safety, uh, function have been building on the cell level. For example, the separator coating, you know, coating on top of that to have better thermal stability of a separator to make sure this, uh, the, uh, positive anode during the high temperature, it will not direct contact to each other. So you won't get up the, the large, uh, the short circuit for example. And then also electrolyte, you can add in more, more like flame retardancy or better, uh, uh stabilize, uh, uh, interface, uh, materials. So basically you can, uh, make it more stable, uh, cell and also on the cat, uh, the positive and the negative, they all have their own like safety, um, uh, like a function in there. And on top of that, because all these cells got heat out, as I mentioned. So there's also some thermal management system. You have to cool down the cells. So you have a lot of like cooling play or like cooling water running around the cells to make sure the cells cool, cool down. And then that will actually, uh, play a big role in this area because we have a lot of uh, material goes in there to make sure is thermal contact is very good. So the heat can, uh, very effectively uh, display from the, uh, the cell to the, uh, the cooling plate. So make sure the cell is like cooling down. But of course, it's not like always running that normally. So the heat maybe it will still go up. And once it goes up, once the cell start like fire up, you need, so that's why I show a thread, you know, the silicone foam or silicone rubber you can place between the cells to make sure the heat or the fire will not propagate to the uh, digital cell. I mean, the adjacent cells, so that can potentially stop the uh, the thermal fabrication and, of course, improve the uh, EV safety. So that's basically yeah. you're arresting the thermal runway potential with the silicone uh, surrounding each cell. So basically, yes, you know, you protect that. And then silicone itself has very, very unique property. It's not like, I don't want to say other materials is bad, but it's more like, you know, silicone, it can form more like SL to like, uh, inorganic material at high temperature. So it's not like, you know, other material will burn, generate some toxic gas, hazard gas, and it end up even more severe, you know, the thermal events or fire events, but silicone has its advantages there. And then you can stop and then also prevent the, uh, the heat propagation or the fire propagation. Yeah. Fred muted himself. While Fred's figuring out mute, I have a question for you. So these thermal runway events, uh, is this something unique more to lithium ion? Because that's what we see with, you know, uh, these Tesla fires that go off and then we need, um, you know, 30 fire trucks worth of water to put them out. Is this... Is this something that's less of a concern with like um, the LFP batteries or some future technology that's coming along? Is this is lithium ion kind of is it an interim step to get to something that you go? Oh, this is not going to have this thermal runway event. Gee, how do you want to take that, or do you want me to? to start? <laughs> you can take. So you, can, you, you can start. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. So you know, I think that. Thermal runaway is is an issue for any type of lithium chemistry, whether it's LFP or some of the other NMC type materials. You know what makes them what makes them particularly interesting is if you think about the fire triangle, right? They generate upon decomposition of the solid electrolyte interface. They generate their own um, their own oxygen to participate in the reaction, and so you know you've got the 
uh, stored electrical energy. You have hydrocarbons in there in the form of ethylene carbonate, dimethyl carbonate, other stuff in the electrolyte, plastic around the cell to encapsulate. Uh, so you have a lot of fuel there, right? And so beyond the 1x stored energy, you have several x of additional perhaps combustible materials. And and then you have oxygen from the decomposition of the the electrode materials themselves. And so, you know, that that's what that's what's particularly challenging kind of about this. And uh, e- even if it even if and when 20 years from now or whenever solid state actually comes to fruition, you know, you remove the you remove some of the combustible materials in terms of the electrolyte, but I think I heard even yesterday, so I'm at the Society of Automotive Engineers conference here, and and like yesterday, there was a whole day spent on battery safety in these discussions, and even going to solid state, uh, you know, you still have the possibility of generating tremendous heat, several thousand degrees, uh, and, and so even though you remove perhaps some of the combustible electrolyte, you don't get away from all of the potential energy that's stored in, in the battery, so you know, I think that even even going in that direction, we probably don't know what all of the risks are because it's not in the field yet. And there may be even others that that we don't see yet. And, you know, just to kind of even back up a little bit further, you mentioned consumer safety. And, you know, this the, the battery is a super complicated system. And the we're not OEMs, of course, and so I don't want to speak for them. But my observation is that they take this, obviously and thankfully, extremely seriously and, you know, our many iterations, even though we're kind of still at the beginning of uh, kind of mass adoption of EV, this isn't really that new to them. And they're on, you know, iteration, whatever it is, of all of the batteries and are working to fail quickly. And so, you know, you look at all the different systems, it's not just one system that is in place to ensure that occupants are safe or first responders are safe. There's many different systems starting uh, you know, even even uh, outside of the cell, but the battery management system, we monitor many different parameters for health of all of the different types of cells at a software level. There's um, various things inside the pack like pressure sensors or detection of CO2, detection of hydrogen, detection of hydrocarbons as a, as a warning to the the vehicle and then the occupants in the vehicle that you know, maybe something goes wrong or is headed in a direction and you need to stop your vehicle or get out of your vehicle uh, and and hopefully prevent thermal runaway from ever happening. And then there's all of the different layers that Chihau was kind of talking about that if you do get past the point of thermal runaway where, where one cell gets too hot or has an internal defect that causes it to get too hot, Really, the goal is to prevent propagation from one cell to neighboring cells. And, you know, there's lots of different ways and you see a lot of innovation in materials towards achieving that. You know, one thing that our observation of pack design and cell design, they're all designed to vent in a particular way. And so, you know, the the first kind of step to that is let's direct all of the gases that come out of the cell when, when the case does break open in a particular way. And and get all of that hot gas and plasma and hydrocarbon away from other cells, away from transferring heat to other cells. And so, you know, they design packs, they design cells to kind of do that. And then there's all of these material innovations and material level plays where where we where we're particularly active in um, kind of mitigating or helping prevent heat conduction, whether that's through preventing, uh, you know, helping direct gas or preventing gas from one cell to the next cell, whether it's preventing uh, conduction or convection, uh, or, or as Chihau mentioned, really preventing or lowering the total fuel content inside the battery pack. I mean, those are all just different layers of protection uh, in kind of either preventing runaway or buying occupants more time to get out of the vehicle. Now, I think I also heard a statistic yesterday that compared to ICE vehicles, I think uh, EVs have a, have a little bit better safety record to date. You know, there's obviously not that many on the road, but something like 4%, 4.5% of vehicles today in the U.S. are electric vehicles. And if you look at all of the safety incidents associated with the whole fleet, they're only like 3.5% of, of uh, total safety events. So underrepresented in the total number of safety events compared to ICE vehicles. And, 
you know, I think that speaks to like all of the innovation and all of the focus that OEMs have on this. And so I'm optimistic, but certainly, you know, things, think, things to continue to think about. So this is pretty geeky so far. So let me let me try to trivialize it, if I may. So <laughs> oh, when no. when you were talking, Chi Hao, you, it made me think about tennis, where you know you've basically got two people on other side on either side of a barrier, and so the barrier is kind of like the the polyethylene separator that's in a lithium ion cell, and then they're they're batting a ball back and forth, and what you're saying is the anode and the cathode send the lithium ions back and forth across this barrier. And generally, like tennis, it's pretty benign. But every now and again, you get a John McEnroe who builds up extra heat in the in the exchange. And, and it's up to the referee to keep the John McEnroe's under control. And they usually do that. But sometimes they don't. And in that case, you got to refer to a higher authority like the, the Tennis Association to control the heat being generated on the tennis court so that it doesn't propagate into the fans. Uh, excuse me, my, my mind works that way, so you have to forgive me for that. But what I, what I was wondering as you were talking is, are there ways of essentially improving the quality of the fence? Are there, you know, are there ways of improving the barriers internal to the batteries, even if you don't change the fundamental chemistry that could make the individual ion cells um, more reliable? Or do you have advanced materials that, that might accomplish that? That was my first question. My second question is, oh, okay, come on. It's, is it true <laughs> that whenever you take energetic material and you put it inside of a hermetic wrapper, you're going to end up with something that's somewhere between a firecracker and a hand grenade, ultimately, because you've got a lot of energy contained within a barrier that can generate tremendous pressure. So those are my two questions at the moment, but take them in whatever order you like. I would take the, the, you know, the first one. So the cell, I think the first one is asking basically the cell level protection or like similar event pre prevention, uh, you know, the uh, development. So there are actually a lot of like uh, development innovation around this one, like I mentioned, separated coding, you know, or like separate itself, you know, it's already out there, like laminate structure, you know, the top and bottom is basically PP, uh, polypropylene, and then the middle is uh, polyethylene. So in a high temperature, the, the middles there will basically melt and it closes itself and it stop the, you know, stop the, uh, the battery. So they basically the one layer of the one of that air to prevent the similar wrong way. And also I mentioned the flame retardants or sometimes that at a high temperature, a lot of decomposition of electrolyte will kill the cell or poison the cell that that also, uh, can function as a one of the function to pre uh, improve the safety just for on a cell level. And then I also heard, you know, this is some separator instead of using like polypropylene or polyethylene, those have uh, less dimensional stability, meaning at a high temperature, at a high temperature, the, the separator can melt very quickly and then, or like, uh, it will shrink very quickly. So we'll have a very large, uh, the short circuit, but it potentially can replace that with something more like poly, uh, aromate is more very high temperature, uh, similar, st uh, similar stable uh, material. If that means at high temperature, this still prevents a lot of like, uh, uh, short circuit between the, uh, the, the positive and negative cells. So, I mean, electrodes. So that can eventually, you know, improve, uh, the cell safety, like significantly. Of course, there's a lot of, uh, I should say incident accident happens. You know, you don't know what's going on in the cell when you're running that, you know, the driver, you know, the occupant, uh, the driver, you don't know how to, how they function their, uh, how they use the EV. People maybe step on the, uh, you know, speed up very quickly and start for supercharger, char, you know, uh, fast charging every day that will kill or like make a cell, uh, age quickly and die quickly. So that actually make it, you know, the safety wise, yeah, a lot of risk to, getting some events. So that's why we need something more, uh, like you may, uh, like I mentioned, the silicone or how, how material can direct the gas, how hot gas out of venting. So better prevent, you know, better, better improve, further improve the, uh, EV battery pack or EV battery, uh, the safety. 
So those like you know different layers, like I mentioned, first layer probably cell level, and second layer will be more like system um, device, you know, uh, battery measuring system to detect uh, the gas or detect voltage impedance or uh, I don't know more like advanced. You can look into more like a pressure, temperature, or even the uh, lithium dendrite. And then the last layer will be, I think, that will be the final layer, more like thermal, uh, uh, battery fire protection material, like silicon foam, and rubber, or even some kind of sealant can help the, the like I mentioned, the gas venting or to prevent the thermal propagation. I think this is like a three different layers. You have to do that to you know make sure EV safety. Yeah. Uh, okay, so you mentioned polyaramid. Is that known as Kevlar? Is that the same material? Yeah, this is uh, polyaramid. Uh, yeah, this is kind of more fiber. Yes, this this information I got like yesterday uh, in the SAE material. <laughs> I talked with Selgar. I say, yeah, they got uh, yeah, there's some better uh, separate out there. The polyaramid, of course, this is money, right? It's all about money. PPP is cheap. It's cheap, and then they can make it very very good. Um, but the port armor, yes, it does have performance, but it who, I mean, of course, if you want willing to pay for that. Yeah. Okay. So, so those so I can mail at like 300 degrees C and then, but for PP, PPP, they are around like, uh, 150. Yeah. Okay. So basically double temperature. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, 150. That's not a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's very easy to short it. Yeah. So is that really not a not a high temperature for these batteries? Like what what's the temperature range they're they're operating at in a vehicle? So currently I think the most common most common the temperature range around like minus forty to eighty degrees C, right? But you know, once everything beyond eighty degrees C, it will keep the heating up because once beyond eighty degrees C you will start generating gas. The generating gas means you have more uh swelling, become bigger and bigger, and then the, your internal resistance becomes higher and higher. And then the heat keep just keep build up, build up, build up. And then the, in a battery pack, it is very, very close pack, meaning the cell, I mean, the heat is not able to escape. I mean, uh, hypothetically. And then it's accumulated over there. And then the heat just accumulated and then it's getting hotter and hotter. And eventually, yeah, everything starts decomposed. That means from maybe from the uh, separator, some melting down. And then a lot of short circuits start, uh, we call it micro, micro short circuit. And then it will start happening and then a lot of hot spots start generate. And then with temperature hitting out some temperature, you know, the cathode start, uh, the, I mean, the positive, uh, active material start degradation and then generate a, a lot of hydrogen. It actually generates hydrogen or, uh, the, some, uh, flammable gas and also the oxygen also in there. Cause a lot of arguments saying that, yeah, in the cell is basically vacuum seal there's no oxygen in there but i don't think that's right right because there's a bunch of like electrolytes generate a lot of flammable issue a uh, flammable material and then also when uh all this positive material de degrade it will actually generate a lot of uh, oxygen in there so it's like basically like a fire triangle right you have a, a fuel you have oxygen you have yeah everything basically you fulfill the fire you eventually get up and trigger the fire very easy yeah it's got high temperature how quick does something like this happen? So, so some reason my EV battery hits 81 degrees Celsius and everything you just described, is this like, okay, this is going to take it, uh, you know, an hour or is this going to be like, Hey, next exit. you're dead. No, I mean, 80, so that's why you need a thermal management system, right? You, you go out, so you cool it down so you can make sure it is it maintained in the right temperature range operate. Well. But sometimes things will happen, right? Sure. That's called life. Right. And then, once it happen, go up to the, you know, once you have a large separate, I mean, large, I mean, large area short circuit, I think that's less than one second. You can heat up, you know, temperature. You can look at that, the arc, you know, there's a basically the temperature rise up from maybe, uh, a hundred degrees C, 200 degrees C and then jump down to 800 degrees C just in a second. Wow. Yeah. Very, very easy. Yeah. So I'm curious in these SAE battery meetings you guys have. So from consumers, consumers with EVs, they're always talking about, oh, I need range because all of a sudden every consumer is like, hey, every weekend I drive a thousand miles towing my boat um, and I need range. And right now I can just use my Ford F350 and I fuel up my tank in five minutes flat. I don't know what world these people live in and maybe they're all wearing diapers. Uh, and so they're always talking about range and charge time and I need charge time. It needs to happen as fast as fueling, uh, 
you know, my car, which, uh, okay, I can understand range anxiety. I can understand charge time issues. Um, and, and I imagine this is something you guys have discussed and how can we improve these things. But what we talk a lot about on this show is reducing weight because EVs, all of a sudden your cars weigh, what, 50% to 150% more. I mean, Michael's next car is going to be the Hummer EV um, just because he hates the world. Uh, and he's like, hey, look, I want to weigh 9,000 pounds going at 70 miles per hour because physics is just fake. So what's been happening to help try and reduce weight around batteries? Or is this something that you guys are just kind of like, well, let's focus on what's going to sell today, which is a fair question. So. I think there's a lot of focus, not not only in the pack, but in other parts of the vehicle as well, because, you know, if you can take it out of the pack, that's great. But if you could take it somewhere, take it out somewhere else in the vehicle as well, that's also important. But, you know, if you, if you look at kind of how battery packs started and, and maybe how a lot of them are still constructed, aluminum structures, fairly robust, right? I think the philosophy was in the event of a crash, protect the cells, uh, and, and use a lot of metal. And of course, metal aluminum's light, but uh, plastics are perhaps lighter. And so I think, you know, one of the th one of the areas we're seeing quite a bit of innovation is in um, kind of design of the pack and integration of the pack. And at, at like, like most innovation, how sophisticated the sophistication changes over time. We didn't end up with a microprocessor after the transistor was invented. It took 20 years and trillions of dollars to get there. And so I think we're seeing a lot of kind of quick innovation here, but certainly they're taking weight out, weights being taken out of the battery pack by, by uh, looking at different materials. I think energy density is a key piece of that, right? And so I think that's why you still see a lot of companies and a lot of cell manufacturers and Chihau, feel free to comment here, looking at and using pouch cells, which are the most energy dense, right? If you either to address range anxiety or to have similar range at lower weight, that's another way you could achieve that. Uh, a lot of focus on kind of materials that do more than one thing. And so kind of Chihau's example of silicone foam, right? That the foam, you need you need something between pouch cells to um, that expands and contracts as the cells charge and discharge. You need something that prevents or helps prevent thermal propagation. And so we're looking, we're looking to incorporate many different material, many different functions into kind of one material package. And so lots of focus on materials, inventing new materials, formulating new materials that do all of these things. And then uh, how do you bring that together in in a full pack? And so, you know, Sabic, for example, has done a tremendous amount of work, work with uh, fire retardant and, and different grades of polypropylene, them and others, Selenese, et cetera, uh, DuPont, us looking at, um, you know, how to improve existing materials that provide the appropriate mechanical properties, appropriate strength, appropriate longevity, better thermal properties, better fire resistance, for example, that protect occupants, uh, but also take some weight out of the pack. And I don't know exactly what those numbers are. It depends on the OEM design. But, you know, we're certainly seeing that. I think that said, I, I don't know that uh, weight of an EV, like the battery materials are just dense and they're going to continue to be dense. And so I, I think the numbers I've seen are something like the average EV today weighs 500 to 1,000 kilograms more. And you know, maybe the best we can hope for is getting on the parity with ICE vehicles versus taking the weight down, just given the nature of solid materials. Right. Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah. the John's recommend, yeah, basically, you know, how do you improve the energy density and the fast charging, you know, the, I mean, of course, you can start with a lot of like active material, you know, silicon anode, I think that's very, very popular for the like, next generation you know, have much higher capacity, much higher energy density, and also you can do fast charging, right? I mean, people say in the five minutes can do like 80%. And yes, that basically, you know, just go to a gasoline station and then just fill that, fill the fill, that's a, the basically the same time. So that definitely can help improve, you know, the fast charging and then the, uh, the, the, the mileage as well. And then, of course, for the pack level design, you know, silicone foam or some other really low density, material that either 
safety prevention or the I mean, safety improvement or some server management system or some other uh, materials going through there that can significantly reduce the weight. So that, you know, everything kind of sums up. You can improve uh, the overall pet level or system level energy density and then improve energy density that basically meaning is improve the mileage per per charging yeah so in terms of battery safety there's this uh, several strategies right one is to improve the materials that are internal to the battery cells using the current popular cell chemistries lithium-ion chemistries uh, the second approach would be to wrap the individual cells or some cluster cells in insulating foam, particularly the, uh, uh, why am I blanking on that term? The, the blank silicon, the foam silicone, silicone foam. foam. I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there <laughs> to wrap the cells or the clusters in silicon foam to reduce the ability of the heat to propagate through and cause a large fire if a small fire stops. And then the third approach is to change the fundamental battery chemistry so that it is inherently less volatile and less susceptible to a thermal runaway than the current chemistries. Is, is that correct? I mean, like John mentioned, right? Solid state battery. I think they're kind of referring, you know, it basically remove all this flammable liquid electrolyte but I remember the solid electrolyte goes in there, they getting thicker and then the weight getting higher. So that's why they usually use, they need to use, I mean, I would say they must use uh, the very, very high density uh, anode material, basically lithium metal or silicon anode. So that, and then because of the energy density by higher and then the, the, the size is much smaller. So think about that, that once you get in something happen, the jaw, the jaw, I mean, the heat release per uh, volume or per size is actually much, much higher than the lithium battery, uh, the, the current lithium battery. So, I mean, it, that high energy release or heat release, they actually melt out a lot of, like, you know, the packaging or, as like I mentioned, the high temperature, the cathode material or some uh, active material will release oxygen. So all these end up eventually still getting some fire Right. And then some of the solid state battery actually use a polymer as a solid electrolyte. So also it melts and then getting fire as well. So I remember that's, that's, that was last year. One of the, uh, the e-bus using this, uh, solid, uh, solid electric, solid battery, uh, solid state battery. They're actually still getting fire. I mean, this still, um, I would say it still happened. Maybe it's, um, Maybe it's safer, but it's a hundred percent safer. I don't. I still. I would say it's still a question mark to me. Yeah. Yeah, Fred. If I could, if I were to summarize, maybe those approaches. You know, I think looking at innovation inside the cell certainly is an area. Chihao mentioned separator materials, but there are other approaches that people are using. I think a second is you know preventing thermal runaway by ensuring high quality cells, and you know folks work really hard to do all of that all of those quality checks along the way to make sure they never leave the factory. Uh, tons and tons of um, work there. Three would be kind of pack design and pack design and materials of choice. So silicone foam, you know, we like that, we make that, but there's other approaches to kind of doing, doing something similar. And, and it's just like, how do you put those different layers together? So people use mica, people use Nomex, people use various other things to ensure uh, either heat isn't transferred or gases aren't transferred or gas doesn't penetrate the the, the case of the battery. Uh, you know, and, and then there's a battery management system, the software that kind of continually checks in on how things are going and either takes action in and of itself or warns the, the occupants. And so that's that's kind of how I would summarize the various high level, very high level now, like layers of protection. When you protect the batteries from thermal runaway, do you make it more or less difficult to manage uh, subsequent fire by the fire department? In other words, you know, are, are you insulating it so that the water they would use to quench the fire is less effective or is it equally effective? Yeah, I mean, they're all hermetically sealed, right? The packs are all hermetically sealed. And and I think the so so the materials that go inside the pack 
you know, I think you want to eliminate airspace in there so there's less oxygen ultimately. But I think the question of how do first responders deal with these things is maybe very applicable to all of the pack designs that at least I've seen today, because they're all they're all hermetically sealed. And so getting water getting water inside is difficult. I'm actually not convinced that getting water on them is even the right approach. Like it may keep things a little cooler, but ultimately you have to deal with it somehow. And so like, I, I've been thinking a lot about this and I, I don't know what it's a, it's a challenge. I don't. Yeah. We've, we've talked about like the environmental effects here where you're pouring water onto burning batteries on the side of the road and that water is <laughs> washing off to God knows where. Um, and Fred even found out that one of the chemicals produced in some burning batteries is a homolog of sarin gas that was used in the Japanese subway attack. So, who knows what's going on when they're just washing this stuff into stream. But um, that's that's certainly been one of our concerns. Another one and another question I had was, do you all have any type of, you know, I, I, like stress testing that's performed on, on, on batteries or do you do you perform any type of, you know, crash testing? I'm sure you're not crashing cars at Dow, but do you, do you work with manufacturers or other folks to, you know, really see what happens when, you know, you subject one of these battery packs to some of the, you know, crash forces we see, say like 55 or 60 uh, miles per hour type situation? So we don't do crash testing. Right. right? <laughs> I would love to do that, but we don't, we don't get to that level as a, as a material designer or supplier. And I, I can't honestly speak for the OEMs. I presume I presume the answer to your question is 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 yes. I think that I don't know what the NHTSA standards are for crash testing, but I presume all of the vehicles have to pass that stuff. And I think maybe you all touched a little bit on this actually on your first podcast about what the requirements are, something like they, the vehicles just don't have to start on fire. But I, I'm not intimately familiar with the, <laughs> what, the, what the crash test requirements are for EVs. But I presume I presume not starting out starting on fire is probably one of them. Um, but, you know, at a material level and at a pack level, there there are there are many folks and many organizations, UL, SAE, uh, you know, I IEEE, um, certainly the 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 standards organizations in China and Europe, many involved in like, what are the right material level, pack level tests. And, you know, we certainly have done testing on our materials with various external partners. There's a half dozen or so companies and nonprofits that that work on stuff like this with material suppliers like us and the OEMs that, that range from, uh, you know, like a, a high temperature torch test, which is something we do internally with hot particles to kind of mimic once an event has started, how do the materials react uh, to small mini modules where you might have nine or 25, uh, you know, uh, little like double A's type lithium ion batteries in there and, and you set one off and see how the materials of construction, whether it's between the cells or to prevent uh, hot gases from coming out of the mock pack, like those those tests get run at at UL and Southwest Research Institute and the uh, Battery Innovation Center and in a number of other places. And and you know then I'm sure the OEMs, I'm sure that they do full pack level tests. I know that they do full pack level tests and uh, learn a lot from that. But um. It's interesting. Like I don't, they're probably not all super well defined yet, or or homologously accepted globally. I know there's a lot of work going on with that, but yeah. but kind of going back to my original, just because there's a standard doesn't mean we're testing the right things all the time either. And I, you know, going right. back to the original statement, like I think the OEMs take this really seriously, uh, and probably do and care a lot more. Uh, about their reputation and uh, and potential liabilities than any standard maybe would require them to today. So, yeah, I, I mean, we've noticed that for sure. And you know, we we see them being very careful when there's battery issues from the GM uh, issues we saw with their LG batteries a year or two ago to the recent, um, you know, the the battery manufacturer. At, that was putting batteries in the F-150 Lightnings uh, that, that where they had to stop production for a couple of weeks recently. And, you know, that's that's what we like to see. They, they literally found a defect and stopped it. I think only two F-150s with a defect made it off of company property. So 
they're really being careful um, around some of the battery issues, and that's good. And I think that's because they're so hard, it appears, to manufacture in a way that's you know re- reaches that quality standard where it's not as subject to fire. It, just, it seems very difficult, the battery manufacturing process. All right. Well, uh, are we wrapped up with uh, our guests here? <laughs> well, I, you know, we could go on for a long. This is a fabulously interesting conversation. I, we could just go on for a long time. But, uh, you know, I want to thank you for bringing some of these issues to the fore and uh, certainly for all of your work to improve battery safety. I, I do think the EVs are coming, like it or not. And, you know, this is uh, certainly going to be a huge contribution to the safety of the public. So thank you for all that work. Thanks yeah, for having us. What thank we want to ask is in all of these meetings, talk about weight reduction. <laughs> <laughs> Everything, weight reduction. Uh, yeah. Hey, uh, thanks again to Shihao Chang, Associate Research Scientist at Dow, and John McKean, Technical Director at Dow Mobility Science. Thank you so much, guys. This is uh, incredibly informative. Um, and You're welcome. Fred's, Fred's going to go buy an EV now. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for having Thank us. You. All right. Thanks. Yep. Thank you. All right, Fred, you want to do your towel? Sure, we can do yes, that now. Uh, and you guys are welcome to stay on if you want to do that, to listen to the, the Tower of Fred, but let's let's go with that. Yeah, so uh, this week, the Tower of Fred, it's uh, the Consumer AV Bill of Rights number 10. You've now entered the Tower of Fred. We've been uh, going through the Consumer Bill of Rights because, uh, in general, the entire conversation about self-driving vehicles has been dominated by the manufacturers. And the rest of us have been pretty reactive to it. So we've gone ahead and put together some standards that that we think are the minimum standards that should be implemented before any of the AVs are allowed on the road as uh, useful for, you know, public interest groups like ourselves, as well as perhaps people who are generating regulations for these vehicles. Um, This one this week is that AVs shall not sell or distribute personally identifiable information of any person to any third parties without their explicit consent. Uh, We think this is kind of a sleeper issue because a lot of the mobility modeling that's been done is associated with self-driving vehicles for hire rather than to be owned by an individual. And if you do that, you've got a charge for it, and that would probably use a credit card if somebody is using an AV for hire. Um, if you do that, you're, in any case, you're generating tremendous amounts of data in the AV, how fast you're going, where you're going, when you're going, uh, who is with you, perhaps. You've got uh, video coming into the car. You've got video going out of the car. AVs, they're just generating tremendous amounts of data that uh, can reveal intimate details of your passengers' private lives. These <laughs> and this intimate details release no it looks like we're losing fred fred your internet connection's dying i think uh facebook these would be intimate details of the type that the folks at (laughs) tesla were looking at a couple of weeks ago from their vehicles yes i don't know they're intimate that's why it dropped off i suppose yeah Uh, i think anyway intimate details that you know state am i still on am i still bad um oh it looks like it's getting better you might want to cut your video. That might help. <laughs> yeah, I could do that, but then you wouldn't be able to see me. But let's It's okay. Anthony's that. already going to edit all of this out. What? Oh, that's a lot. <laughs> all right. So is this better now? Yes. yes. Okay. All right. So you're talking so about it's selling so, intimate data. data. Oh, look at this. I can't even. I, I'm so much editing this week. Let me it, just. Data, so, all right. Oh. So we got the. The lead in, right? AV shall not sell it through. Oh, yes. We were, we were right at the part of. Um, a lot of video going in, a lot of video going Intimate, out. intimate details. Yes. Where, right. where you stop. So like AVs, AVs will generate a tremendous amount of data in any case. Uh, where are you going? When are you going? What are those intimate details? Uh, who are you visiting? When are you visiting them? A lot of information that could be useful to people who are trying to do 
harm to you. Um, this may be, you know, involved in litigation. It could be discoverable. It's important that, uh, as a minimum, the AVs don't provide that information to people uh, who are not authorized to get it. Under court order, yeah, you're going to do what you need to do, but you don't want to release that information to anybody without appropriate court orders. Um, all of this information could be associated with you if you're using AVs for hire, because you're probably going to use a credit card, which is traceable to you, to pay for the service. So it's important that you know this information is very carefully controlled. There are no current standards for AVs that document or even suggest how this information should be controlled. And there are a lot of people, a lot of OEMs that are looking at this information as a possible source of revenue. Um, in our opinion, the scope of the third-party distribution prohibition has got to include not only the authorized user of the vehicle, but also whoever is paying for the trip and the people who are otherwise in the car, additional passengers, and also the people who are around the car. You know, this facial recognition could do a lot about associating this car with other people or places or you or your passengers. We really need to assure that the consumers are protected from the illicit or un, unauthorized use of this data. Um, so, I think there's there's two sides of that too, Fred. It's you know it's not just in how you design the vehicles and how they're capturing um, what goes on in the car, how they're transmitting it, but when when you get into a rideshare vehicle now and i'm sure this isn't going to change a whole lot if these things take over our roads you're signing an agreement of some sort and it's not an agreement that you get to go into and edit to suit you it's a contract of adhesion basically where you're signing off whatever's in there and in there you're probably going to be signing off some of the use of personal information um whatever they can use to market we know how how uh how much companies and auto companies, particularly these days, want want your data and want to be able to use it. Um, but you're also signing off on things like, you know, uh, binding arbitration. And, and you, you know, you're basically signing a contract that says that if something happens while you're in that AV, you're not going to be able to take them to court. So there's a lot of issues here. I mean, it's it's in some ways the the con this you know this type of structure who yourself who this data is going to is baked into the contract you agree to at the time you hop in the vehicle um so there's definitely some great care that needs to be taken in this area i well, love this one we're... i think it might be the hardest one though as michael was saying i mean it's not as my favorite as we covered last week in episode with the uh number nine with the big red button but this is uh yeah i, I I don't know. I don't know how to how do we do this? Because, you know, I, I call up that vehicle. It's on my phone and there's some long agreement. You just click agree. Uh, and then the next thing you know, I'm on some Scandinavian website that people have a fetish of watching me driving a car. Well, sure, especially if the video is available to third parties, uh, you know, without your consent. Uh, we know the Tesla's kind of casual about the videos that are being generated within the Tesla vehicles and putting them out uh, to I guess third parties, but certainly viewing it in the lab and having a good laugh at people picking their nose as they wait for the light to change. Um, anyway, this this is all subsumed under this basic heading of control of the information and that the person who is generating the information needs to be in control of the uh, distribution of that information as well. I th Michael, is it correct that this has got to be handled at the state level, or is this something that people talk about at the federal level, or where does this go? Where do we go with this? Well, I mean, it's being discussed at you know on a lot of levels at this point. I mean, I think it comes up a lot in some of the right to repair laws that we've seen passed in Massachusetts, and some that are you know there's a federal right to repair bill on the way. I mean that. Those types of bills are, are what ultimately is going to address, you know, who owns the data generated by vehicles, who owns the, you know, the the um, right to use that data. And, you know, I, I think there are 
compelling arguments for manufacturers and automakers to have some of that data. I mean, they need a lot of the data that is generated by AVs to for safety purposes. They need to evaluate, you know, how passengers are responding in certain types of events and other things. So um, I don't think we're asking for a blanket prohibition where every consumer gets to tell the manufacturer what data they're going to be able to have to address some of these issues. But I think when it comes to, you know, personally identifiable information and other things, that has to be um, put within the control of the consumer. Well, it seems like it would be simple enough to have an opt-in option available when somebody swipes their credit card for one of these rides. <laughs> I think I think that seems simple, but I just don't know that that's something without you know without a requirement being placed that that's going to be put into place. Um, I think it would have to be federally required. I'm not sure what the odds of that would be. I mean, I know there are some compelling arguments for manufacturers to have access to your data, whether you know, particularly I think as we move towards vehicles having you know, not even just AVs, but vehicles having subscription models where you're buying different components of your vehicle, like heated seats and other things. We're hoping safety components don't make it into the subscription world, but we're already seeing some signs of that. Um, so, you know, there's a lot to be done here. There's very little federally um, around this issue and states are struggling to keep up. And, um, you know, I think, I'm hoping that in the next decade, NHTSA is able to get on top of this issue and, and issue some sort of rule, at least to protect some of the more, um, protect consumers from more of the egregious or the, some of the worst incidents we've seen in this area, like folks at Tesla passing around videos of drivers, because that really undermines the general public's faith in some of the technology that we really want to see that relies on cameras like driver monitoring systems. So um, having a, a firm rule in place there to prevent some of the bad actors from doing these types of things would, would, would really be great to help push some of the safety technology that I think we're going to need in the next few years as this conditional autonomy and level three, you can sleep while your car is driving down the interstate um type of stuff comes to market hey i've been sleeping in cars for years i don't even <laughs> need self-driving um and with that this episode is brought to you by the word egregious a word that michael just made up um is so, it egregious i, I you know sometimes I, I am you know that's my mississippi education sorry about that <laughs> oh we apologize to the state of mississippi uh really. well it's nice to, it's nice to see you in apartment after so long uh you know, sleeping in cars, Anthony. Hey. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you, uh, listeners. Uh, thank you again to our guests. And uh, we'll be back next week. But the only way we're coming back next week is if you go to autosafety.org and click on the donate button and just keep clicking on it over and over again. Probably fill out the form that comes up afterwards because just clicking on the button, that's just, that's a, that's egregious behavior. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks, everyone. Till next week. Bye bye. Chi Hao, John, thanks again. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. All right. For more information, visit www.autosafety.org.